Welcome to Storytime with Paul Doerr. This season of the podcast includes excerpts via live shows and in-studio recordings from my new book, I'm Leaving It, and other stories. Some of the stories are true and some are not. I'll let you figure it out. But they all hopefully have my trademark charm, wit, and profound wisdom. Purchase your copy of the entire book in paperback, ebook, or audiobook form at all major online booksellers. I also write a monthly newsletter that is both fun and insightful. To subscribe to the newsletter or for further information about the book, please visit pauldor.com. Today's story, Self-Medication. I was a good teenager. Partying was not even on the map. Being a competitive athlete, it just wasn't a consideration. There was no worry about being invited to parties with kids from school. Male figure skaters do not really fit in well with high school. Sure, I was called the usual things, but it was more confusing than anything else. I really did love to skate, although it might be more due to it being an individual sport as opposed to a team sport. I mean, who wants to be a part of a team? And have everyone disappointed in you when you inevitably mess up? As an individual figure skater, the failures fell squarely on my shoulders. Or, at least they did in my own mind. Plus, the main perk was my heterosexuality in a sport full of girls. Trust me, Enough people thought I was gay and felt compelled to communicate to me their hunch that I did think about this a lot. Maybe I was gay. I would be okay with that if it was the case. It seemed to be other people that had the real problem. Besides, who wanted to be on a hockey team with a bunch of stinky boys? At the figure skating arena, I was a superstar. There might not have been a lot of school parties, but once we hit driving age, skating parties happened all the time. Still, nothing interfered with my training. I was never really a heavy drinker, just something appealed to me about being able to shut off my very active mind. What I didn't know was that, at the time, I was trying to quiet the voice, which started rumbling away and commenting on my life. During my first year at university, I remained a competitive athlete, but it didn't last long. There was too much happening around me. People seemed to like me in university. You weren't forced to be friends with people due solely to proximity. I found like-minded people who, most importantly, were cool. I was most definitely not cool, so this attention was surprising. Really, when I looked back at it now, only one cool person liked me, but that was enough to warrant invitations to parties. I was now on the list. Yes, drugs were around, but that was one addiction that never really stuck. Pot only enhanced the voice, removed any shackles on it. Inside my own head, I sounded stupid, and when I spoke, even more stupid. 
Mushrooms made me think I had reached a different level of consciousness, the kind that many young people experience in university. Ecstasy happened precisely once, and for those few hours, the world finally made sense to me. Still, the next few days of withdrawal were so terrifying and depressing that I never touched it again. Alcohol was my drug of choice, and I enjoyed every minute of it, even the hangovers. The hangovers were me punishing myself. For what, I still don't really know. As I graduated from university, I turned into a workaholic, a kind of holic that still haunts me. But I worked all the time spinning my wheels and didn't really get much further than from where I started. I wonder why. I started working at a production company and there were many late nights and long hours. Just to complicate things, I had my own production company where I made my own films. Often, I'd be at the office either finishing a work project or something of mine, my boss being generous enough to let me use all the equipment. Work hard, play hard. Finishing work was being let out of a cage. The alcohol consumption was justified here because I worked so hard. Really, deep down, I knew that I was weighing over my head at work and with my own projects. The voice made sure to let me know all of this, but I managed to control and create some kind of balance. I managed treading water to such a functional capacity that when I finally sunk, it was such a shock that I wouldn't recover for years. A period of forced self-exile pulled me out of the need for balance. Moving out of the city, it was no longer convenient to go out for a night of drinking. Sure, I'd have the odd couple of beers at home, but mostly I just read and wrote and worked. This was the point where the voice became somewhat smug, having thought it won the war. It was relatively quiet, and so the need to self-medicate not necessary. After working at the Olympics in Russia, I came out of the self-exile and made my move back downtown, closer to new friends, experiences, and, of course, bars. My creative projects were not over, being reignited, and with it, the voice realizing it had to become strong again, had to become heard again. It was an arms race to the bottom. What happened next was a conflation of several small incremental movements, movements that I barely noticed. What happened next was a conflation of several small incremental movements, movements that I barely noticed. At the time, I could talk myself into almost any kind of behavior. A large part of my life became managing my vices with the sole goal of no one finding out just how messed up I had become. The car accident happened, which caused the concussion, and strict instructions from the neurologist not to consume alcohol. Since my health was a priority for the first time in direct relation to alcohol, I found other things to do with my time. Food was a big one. My primary source of comfort food was the trifecta, bowl of instant ramen noodles, bag of chips, in a large peanut butter cup chocolate bar. I didn't eat this every night, but it was definitely my fallback when I wasn't feeling so great, which was a lot. I opted for food I thought made me feel better, rather than food that would actually make me healthier. It's obvious to state now, but it's really important what you put into your body. Just let me own that stupid statement. It takes me a bit longer to get to logical conclusions. The weight gained right in my stomach, causing it to extend like I was pregnant. As stated in Act 1, this caused me to walk and stand differently, which caused lower back pain, which caused me to sit around even more, 
which caused me to watch more television, which caused me to eat more. And did you know, eating a lot of bad food adds to depression? Right, something else that took me a while to figure out. The concussion healing nicely, the neurologist, without me prompting, approved the consumption of alcohol. I stopped at the beer store on my way home. After all that time sitting around, the voice had gotten very loud, really come around to letting me know about how I should have died in that car crash. Whenever someone referred to how lucky I was, the voice was there in the background, reminding me that there will be a next time, and I won't be so lucky. I started with a beer every other night or so, just enough to dull the voice a little bit, and it worked. One beer every other day became a beer every night. As I recovered from the concussion, my father died. At the time, I thought I dealt with it maturely and pretty much went back to work. These things have a way of creeping up on you. An interesting side note is that during my time with my dad in the hospice, the voice was gone like it was never even there. Maybe it was scared of health-related environments, scared that it could be externally detected. Maybe it was that when in the hospice, my reason for being was so clear, so undeniable, that it did not know how to react, how to criticize, draw negative conclusions to my actions. Now, I am not categorically blaming any of these things for what happened. It was a terrible combination of my own devices and my internal problems being exasperated by these external forces. I'm not a victim of anything or any person. I am a victim of myself. I created a need to self-medicate because I didn't know how to deal with myself, let alone anything majorly stressful. The voice just became too strong. It overtook me in a most quieted way. It actually didn't have to do anything. After a lifetime of listening to it, trying to manage it, it created the ideal situation. I was destroying myself from the inside out, a broken person who had no self-control and needed only the slightest nudge over the cliff. There were very clear rules. I never drank before 8 o'clock p.m., but by 8.01 p.m., the sound of a beer can opening echoed in my apartment. Another rule was that my place could not reveal this problem. Beer cans were disposed of immediately in order to not pile up. After eating some crappy food, usually takeout, I'd sit at my desk in front of the computer screen, just sit and watch a terrible action movie or several episodes of my private detective shows. Staying up late became the norm, convincing myself that I was just a night person, thinking, no believing, that this was how I processed things. My way was to stay up late, turn my thoughts over and over to understand them. Often, I slept on my small, two-seater couch to make it easier to get up in the morning. The rationale being that the more uncomfortable I was, the easier it would be to wake myself up. Along with being a night person, I was not a morning person, or so had affixed this to my personality. That was it. My life converged into simply sitting around, trying to kill that part of me that still existed. I convinced myself that this was just my life now. Self-medicating in this way does not rob you of a life. It could provide a very active life, but in the end, it does rob you of a soul. Mine was being sucked out of me at an alarming rate. When I would go out, I'd leave early, stating my old age and need to get up in the morning. The truth was that if the activity didn't involve alcohol, I excused myself to go to my empty home and crack one open from my stash. No one noticed. 
I became good at hiding it. I was quickly becoming invisible to other people and most damaging to myself. The isolation from friends and family became evident to no one, not even myself. I played people off each other. I was always an odd person, something my friends and family were aware of, so it didn't seem so strange. I could go from one person to another, disappear for a few days, and no one noticed. From what I could tell, I was fooling everyone, which I was most likely not, and what a terrible way to treat my friends. All I had to do was reach out and tell people, talk to someone, anyone. Shame over my behavior during this time and my problems provoked silence and the inability to communicate. Shame is highly underrated and can cause more harm than I imagined. The voice started in on this, convincing me that no one wanted to hear from me, that they were embarrassed to be my friend, would be shocked over my lack of self-control. The voice silenced me. It won. I didn't recognize it at the time, but when I look back, my life truly hung in the balance. It would have been very easy just to completely give in, give over to the path I was setting out for myself. I always viewed drugs like alcohol as a way to explore my subconscious. In a way, believed that my mind was too active and I needed to shut down certain parts to turn on those areas that I wanted to access. At different points in my life, alcohol might have helped me in social situations. Being a shy person, my anxiety could get the best of me and alcohol helped curb that. But when does a line get crossed? When does it become necessary to function? During those few months, I was simply becoming numb. My brain became mushy, which I was able to chalk up to the concussion. No one noticed. My reasoning and reality devolved into not understanding my direction. I didn't notice. All motivation was lost. There was no sense in doing anything, but not in some grand way, just a general feeling of disgust with myself and a light hum of disappointment. No one noticed. When you're generally already a misanthrope, hiding a new and profound sense of your worthlessness is easy. I dwelled in this cynicism, sunk deeper into a well where the only person that was there were myself and the voice, who continually, in a light whisper, let me know exactly where I was heading. I knew how I was going to die. My apartment is a loft that has two levels with a steep curved staircase. I was convinced that one night, one too many beers to realize I needed to be careful on the stairs, stairs that are wood and could be slippery when wearing socks, I'd rush down, slipping and breaking my neck below. My phone out of reach, I would only be found when someone tried to get a hold of me and finally got the building manager to enter the apartment, finding me bloated and broken. Certainly not the most glamorous way to die, but inevitable. People often talk about hitting bottom. My bottom wasn't exciting, but I am thankful it was not falling down to the bottom of the steps. I just got sick of myself, sick of the voice, too tired, and understood that I couldn't continue on like this. I had to make a choice. There was something that gnawed away at me. When in the hospice with my dad, I sat with him overnight. He was sedated, but still conscious. He communicated with me by the squeezing of a hand. One squeeze for yes, two for no. I sat holding his hand, an intimacy that often didn't happen between us. I was having a conversation with him, and I asked, Do you think I could be a better person? One squeeze. 
During the following months, that squeeze stuck in my head. At first, I interpreted it as him being disappointed that he felt I was not the person he hoped I could be. But one winter night, in a slight haze of beer and bad food, I was back in the hospice room holding my dad's hand. Somehow I cut through my mushy mind, found an ounce of strength to shut down the voice for a minute and realized that he wasn't disappointed in me, discovered that he knew I was a good person. It was just I had the potential to be even better. Now, you could say this interpretation was reaching and that the squeeze of my hand could mean just about anything, but I needed something to hold on to something that lived within me to counter the narrative that the voice had set up for me. As the voice returned, I realized something else. For as long as I could remember, the voice was inside my head, but felt like it was someone commenting on me. Maybe this seems obvious, but I had a thought, just something simple that I remembered thinking long ago. The voice was me. And if that voice was me, then I was the one in control, not the voice. The voice was an extension of me. Therefore, I was in charge, not it. And if I was in control of the voice, then there was no reason to try and silence it. The voice was a part of me that I was attempting to shut down when really I could change the script. I could change the words that the voice spoke to me. There was something behind the voice that I was not dealing with which were byproducts of a deeper problem. Maybe my father was right. Maybe I had the potential to be a better person. Thank you for listening. Again, if you'd like to purchase a copy of I'm Leaving It or any of my other books, they are available at most online booksellers. The live performances were originally performed and recorded at the monthly storytelling event, Stories We Don't Tell. To learn more about Stories We Don't Tell, head over to storieswedonttell.org. For everything else, please visit pauldor.com. <laughs>